Professor Dreyfus, you are the 14th Arthur Goodhart Visiting Professor of Legal Science to be interviewed for the Eminent Scholars Archive. And you're currently the Pauline Newman Professor of Law and co-director of the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy, both at the New York University School of Law, where you've been since 1998. And currently... 1983. 1983. Thank you. Thank you. You've been the visiting Goodhart Professor here uh, from 2019 to 20. And we're very grateful for your agreeing to share some reminiscences of your fascinating career, firstly in research, chemistry and pharmaceuticals, and then in law, and particularly the field of intellectual property. So could we start with your early life? You were born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1947. And I wonder if you could tell us something about your parents, your early life, and how your parents influenced you. Uh, Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, well, my father um, was a rabbi, uh, but he died when I was um, 10. Um, and my mother remarried an engineer when I was 12, I guess. And she herself, when my father got sick, went to graduate school and got a master's degree and then a PhD in psychology. Um, so I was very much influenced that I wanted to have a career and that I could do that and I could do it when I had children. Uh, and um, my stepfather, the engineer, kind of pushed me into sciences. So that's how I wound up in science. Very interesting. Um, so these would have been your early years, would have been in the early 50s through to the 60s and uh, a time of the Cold War and very confident, booming United States. And I wondered if this shaped your outlook on life? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I, you know, I do remember practicing uh, for a nuclear attack when I was in school and you had to hide under your desk and um, you had to wear dog tags during the Korean War. Um, so I don't think I felt like the United States was a preeminent power. I thought we, if anything, that we were likely to be attacked. Um <laughs> But I don't think I thought about it very much at all, frankly. Yeah. Well, uh, where did you go to school? What's that? Where did you go to school? Elementary school? Wait, yes. I went to a, a Jewish school um, originally until eighth grade, a school called, well, I went to public school until third grade, and then I went to a school called Bialik School, B-I-A-L-I-K. Uh, and then to um, a high school called Yeshiva of Flatbush. Right. So you did chemistry at college when you matriculated, and I wondered whether you were inspired by some of your high school teachers to make this choice. By my who? My high school teachers? Uh, Well, I really liked math when I was in high school, and I I really thought maybe I'd go into math. But... um, Freshman year of college, I took chemistry, and I like, you know, the sort of application of math to an actual science better. So then I went ahead and chemistry. Right. And what what made you choose Wellesley College in Massachusetts? Wellesley? <laughs> so, um, so Wellesley is one of the seven sister colleges. You know, when I went to college, um, Harvard and Yale and all those schools were um, all boys. 
And then there were these women's colleges called the Seven Sisters. Um, and so I don't know if I particularly thought about going there. Um, it's really a crazy story. Um, uh, I, I had thought I would probably go to a college closer to New York. So I was thinking, first of all, Brooklyn College was free in those days. Um, um, but um, uh, Sarah Lawrence was a college that a friend of mine had gone to. So I was kind of interested in that. But my high school principal wanted to show the world that his students could get into a seven sister college. So I was just told to apply to Wellesley. Um, and you know, he just handed me a card and you know, he handed all the all the students that had done well in high school got these cards of someplace they had to apply just to show that the school could get people into these places. And so I applied to Wellesley because I was told to. And then you had in those days you had to go for an interview. Well, like here you have to go for an interview, but in, in the U.S. you don't anymore. But then you did. And uh, I went to the interview with my mother and it was a day that it was snowing and it was New England. And it, you know, it's sort of it's beautiful campus. I mean, it looks a little bit like Kings, really, with these very old looking buildings, you know, built much more recently, of course, but to look old. And it was just absolutely gorgeous. And my mother turned to me and she said, if you get into this place, you're going. So I did. And my school was appalled because um, I wasn't supposed to go there. I was just supposed to get in. Uh, I was supposed to stay around New York. Um, but I chose to go there and it was a wonderful place to go to college. Mm -hmm. Well, you graduated from there in 1968 and then became a graduate student at College of Chemistry at the University of California, Berkeley. Right. So this was a major key location. Uh, did you aspire to life in California? Well, I, yeah, um, I think it's more common in the United States than it is here to go to, to go away when you're in college and graduate school. I mean, that's just considered something that you did. Um, so, you know, I went to Massachusetts for college and then I thought it would be fun to go out to California. I don't know if I thought I would stay there. Um, and, you know, if you go to graduate school, after graduate school, you go try to get a job and that could be anywhere in the country. So, no, I don't think I particularly thought I'll go live in California forever. So after two years, you took a post at Vanderbilt in Tennessee as yeah. another translocation, physical. Well, what happened was I met my husband. He was the boy in the lab next door at Berkeley. And uh, we got married. And um, he got at, at, by the, at this point, it was very hard to get uh, academic jobs in chemistry. And that's what he wanted. And he got uh, offered a job at, at uh, Vanderbilt. So we wound up in Tennessee um, and I could have stayed at Berkeley, but I, I didn't want to begin my marriage long distance. So I, uh, I, I went with him to, to, Cal to uh, Tennessee. Right. And, and uh, then you, you ended back near where you started your life um, in New York at the yeah. Department of Genetics, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Yeah, so um, so we we lived in 
uh, Tennessee for a few years. We didn't like it at all. Um, I mean, we, we really hated it. Turned out all of our, all the people we made as friends were also people who hated it. So we were looking to leave and my husband got a job at a, a college in New York. And I had, um, by then my son was born. And so I was, I only wanted to work part time. And my uncle was a professor at uh, Albert Einstein. So he got me a part time job there. So right. that was just a week. Yeah. Then you were able to follow uh, in this way a progression in a prospective medical academic research career. Because your next post well, was, was When I was in Nashville, I actually worked um, at, at, at Vanderbilt at, in the pharmacology department. So that's kind of where I started doing more medical stuff. Right. Because your next post was in commerce with Siba Geige. Uh, where you stayed from 75 to 78 in the Department of Drug Metabolism. Yeah, so wondered, was, yeah, go ahead, sorry. What made you switch to com this commercial research? Oh, well, let's see. I worked at uh, Vanderbilt until my daughter was born, and then um, I took some time off, so I had both kids at home. And then I saw, I think, a job advertisement um, at in pharmacology and when I worked at Albert Einstein I was working in the pharmacology and sort of doing pharmacology type work in, in genetics but it was more pharmacology so um, so it seemed like a good job it was right near where we lived you know, it was about a 10 minute drive um, you know, near where my kids pediatrician was so it was a handy place to work very yeah. interesting because presumably this succession of posts over the 10 years gave you a deep insight into the way that IP affected medical innovation and development. Yeah, that, that wasn't the point. I was just being a chemist. But uh, but yes, I did learn a lot and it was very helpful later on in my career. That's true. Yeah. But that brings us then to the beginning of your legal career. In 1978, you made a major career change and you entered Columbia Law School. And I wondered what the basis was for this fundamental shift. Well, when um, when I was in college, I, I really couldn't decide whether to go to graduate school in chemistry or I kind of was interested in law um, and I couldn't decide. And then it turned out graduate school, they gave you a stipend and you made money and law school was very expensive and I would have had to rely on my parents and I didn't want to do that. So that's part of why I went to graduate school, but I had always in the back of my head thought, mm, maybe I really should have gone to law school instead. And then when I was at Siba, um, Siba Geige is now an artist, by the way, um, but um, the guy in the lab next door was going to law school at night and um, he'd come in and he'd, you know, tell us about the case he was reading and the questions at the end of the case. And I'd say, oh, I think you know, this is the way it should come out. And he'd say, no, that's just totally stupid. And then he'd come in the next day and he'd say, oh, my professor said exactly what you said. You were in law school. Um, and the other thing is when you're in drug metabolism, the reason you're doing that work is um, to provide data to the Federal uh, Drug Administration, the FDA. And so I had to interface with lawyers um, who were preparing the FDA work. And they said I was the best liaison they'd ever had and that I should go to law school. 
So I was hearing it from many different places. And um, I, I mean, things that's, you know, I, I didn't have my PhD and really I wasn't going to get anywhere without my PhD. So basically I had to either go back to chemistry or do something different. And everybody was saying go to law school. So I went to law school. <laughs> well, you graduated in 1981, but even while you were still an undergraduate, you published a 1980 note on vindication of civil rights. And uh, I wondered what attracted you to this topic at this early stage. Oh, oh dear. The American law school system. So, you know, so first of all, you know, it's, it's a graduate, law school is a graduate school. So you've already, everybody's already done an undergraduate degree. Um, but um, if you do well your first year, then you're on the law review. And um, on the law review, is like being in a different world. The third-year students run the law review and you do what they say. And some third-year students said, you will write a note on attorney's fees and civil rights cases. And so I wrote a note on attorney's fees and civil rights cases. Um, it was a good topic. I mean, they'd given me a different topic at first. This was a good topic because there was a very recent statute. It was about five years old. Nobody quite knew how to interpret it. So there were a bunch of cases trying to interpret it. You knew the question was ultimately going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so there wasn't a lot to read because it was a brand new statute, which is good because you don't have a lot of time to read when you're in law school. And it was going to be an issue that would go to the Supreme Court. And so I thought if that's what they want me to write about, it'll be good. And uh, it, 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 I mean, it, it, it was an interesting topic. and. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And you you had two terms of clerking, first in 1981 for Chief Judge Wilfred Feinberg uh, of the U.S. Court of Appeals Second Circuit, and then 1982 to three Chief Justice Warren E. Berger of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I wondered uh, what your takeaway was from these experiences. Oh, gee, <laughs> Um, I mean, clerking is a lot of fun because, you know, it's not a real job. You know, it's just going to last a year or two years so that you don't feel like you're auditioning for a partner at a law firm or professorship or something. So it's fun. And you feel like, you know, the world is really on your shoulders, that what you say is going to make a difference. I mean, it feels like really your judge is deciding the case, but it feels like you're deciding the case. So, um, so, you know, in that way, it's, you feel like you're really have an effect. Um, and what did I take away from that? You know, I, I, I learned a lot about Supreme court practice, um, and how they think about cases and how cases wind up there. And I think knowing it from the inside provides you with insights that, you don't get by just looking at the docket and what they've decided to take. You have a much better sense of what what's going on there, what they're thinking about, how they're thinking about the cases, how they're thinking about the oral arguments in the cases. So uh, I think I had a, quite a lot of insight into the, the workings of the court. You wrote an appreciation of Chief Justice Berger in 1984. Was he something of a mentor to you? 
No, Judge Feinberg was a true mentor, my Court of Appeals judge. Um, It it just happened that, because I I was older when I went to law school, so my husband and I already owned a house in a suburb, and we were raising two children, and it just turned out he lived in the same suburb, um, and he had children also, and you know, my kids' friends knew his children, and um, my friends knew his wife, and so you know, he became somebody that I was extremely close to. Um, and he was a Democrat and a liberal, and um, I'm a Democrat and liberal. So, you know, his attitudes towards um, thinking about justice, thinking about doing justice between the parties, thinking about how laws interpreted. I think he just transmitted every one of those things straight to me. I and mean, even things like how I keep my files in my office is the way he did it. Um, Justice Berger, you know, was very far to the right. He's a total conservative. Um, you know, he liked to have a liberal law clerk every year because he wanted to hear the opposite point of view. But uh, uh, his way of doing things is not mine and never did become mine. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, in 1983, you joined the New York University School of Law. And I wondered if you could tell us the circumstances of this appointment. It was a critical point in your career since you've stayed there ever since, 37 years to date. Right. Yeah. Um, So let's see. So, I mean, my husband had a job in New York. You know, my kids were going to school in New York. So although I said before that Americans tend to move all over the country for their jobs, I didn't feel that I could do that. Uh, I didn't want to uproot him. I mean, he came to Washington for the year. I clerked in Washington, but he didn't want to move permanently. And my kids wanted to go back to their friends. And we, we had a nice house. We didn't want to sell the house. So it was obvious I had to look for a job in New York. So you know, I interviewed at Columbia, but I didn't really want to go back to Columbia because it's hard to go back to the school where you were a student. You, you're sort of, you're always a student. You know, you'll always feel yourself that way. So I wanted to go someplace else. And there are several schools in New York, but NYU made me an offer. So I took that. And your initial duties, the subjects that you taught? Well, the one, this the subject I was most, so the way things work then, it doesn't work this way anymore, but the way it worked, then is you got to choose one subject that you could that you said you wanted to teach it and they would let you teach it and then everything else they chose now now people just come in and they already have a lot of writing um and so their subject is set but in those days you went straight from clerking to um teaching and so you didn't have any experience and you hadn't written very much uh and so um they could tell you what to teach. Um, and the course I wanted to teach was civil procedure. So things like, you know, what's the court's authority over people? What's the court's authority over the case? What's, the, you know, who who gets the benefit of going to court's ac- court access? Under what terms? I thought that was about the most fascinating thing that I had learned about in law school and that I worked on when I was a law clerk. So that's the course I asked to teach was civil procedure. And what they gave me originally was environmental law because I'd been a chemist and environmental law is a lot about, you know, the effects of pollution and things like that. So they thought that was perfect for me. And then 
I was there maybe two weeks, and the guy who taught intellectual property was diagnosed as having terminal cancer. And they came into my office, and they said, you're it. And so I ditched all those books about environmental law, and I got all these books about intellectual property, and I sat in on his class until he died, and then I took over his class. So I had never taken a course in intellectual property, um, but it was trial by fire. Um, and and of course, it was good because I had done chemistry. And as you said, I know a lot about how innovation happens and what creative people need. So it was a perfectly good match, but it wasn't what I was originally expecting. Very interesting. So it was this at this point that your interest crystallized in intellectual property. Right. And not very many people did it then. It was a very unpopular subject. I would say there were in the United States, there were maybe three other people who taught it full time. Um, you know, three very nice guys who helped me a huge amount, but it really was not a particularly popular course with students. Most law schools either didn't teach it at all or they had some practitioner who came in for an hour or two hours a week and taught it. But it kind of exploded after I got there. And so it became a terrifically great area to be, but it was pure dumb luck. <laughs> so one your earliest paper in IP law was in 1986, dethroning Lear, yeah. licensee estoppel and the incentive to innovate. Yeah. And then you also published a paper on the Creative Employee and the Copyright Act. Yeah. And I wondered what moved you to write these the first in a long and very impressive contribution to IP literature. Oh, thank you. So the first one, dethroning Lear, um, that that person who knew he was dying, who was an incredible, wonderful person named Alan Lapman, who's you know still considered one of the all-time great uh, intellectual property people. Um, chose that topic for me. I mean, he knew he was dying. He knew I had to take over. He knew I knew nothing about intellectual property. He knew I was interested in civil procedure. And so he found that topic, which was kind of a combination of procedure and, and patent law. Um, and so it was a perfect topic. You know, I knew enough about the procedure part that I could sort of gently move into the other part. Um, and it was also a good topic because it enabled me to to sort of learn patent law over the summer, I had to teach it the next year. Um, so that one was kind of chosen by him. Um, the 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 other one um, I chose, I guess that's the first piece I really chose myself. And I, I was very interested in what motivated people to be creative, um, how they felt about this new system that I was having to learn, uh, what was good about it, what was not. And I, I actually had a student who was a PhD in um, English literature. And she said, oh, there are all these authors who've written about that. You know, why don't you read some of their stuff? And so she found me the first few pieces. And then, you know, I found some things by scientists also. And it was it was really a nice way to kind of move in and think about the other side, not just what the legal community wanted, but what the creative community wanted. Yeah. Right. So in 1988, that was five years uh, after you started at NYU, 
you were elevated to the Pauline Newman Professor of Law. Well, originally, just uh, just became a professor, and then it was several years after that that she gave the money for me to become a chaired professor. Uh, oh, I see. So first you're a professor, and then maybe five or ten years later, if you're lucky, you get a chair. Uh, right. So when you um, took the chair, did your duties change? No, um, at some schools that, that might be the case, but at NYU it's not. Um, they raise money. Yeah, American law schools, private schools are self-funded. Um, so part of the money comes from tuition, but a lot of the money comes from donations. And one of the way they attract donations is to say, we'll name a chair after you. Um, and so people give money on their own behalf or on behalf of somebody else to have a professorship named after them. But at our school, all it is is uh, kind of relief, uh, budget relief for the school. It makes no difference in your life except that you now sign your name, Polly Newman, Professor of Law. <laughs> and were you the first incumbent? Were you the first incumbent? Polly yes. Newman is a judge on the um, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and she's still there. So, so it's a kind of an odd thing. I write about her court. And she is on the court. And sometimes we're both invited to give papers on the same topic. And I take one side and she takes the other side. And my slides come up, Rochelle Dreyfus, Polly Newman, professor of law. And her slides come up, Polly Newman. <laughs> <laughs> so your earliest book chapter was written during this time, 1989, uh, a general overview of the intellectual property system in Owning scientific and technical information, um, and you wrote specifically on your medical speciality in the jurisprudence of genetics. So, has the position moved on much since you had participated personally in this type of research, or years later? So, I, I can't. I can barely remember that first article. I think that article was how you use genetic information to make decisions about, like, whether somebody's dangerous or. Who should be the you know when it was surrogate parency was just coming in so does the surrogate get the baby or does the people who arrange to have the baby so that that was kind of the use of genetic information and I I think the the um, the debates have changed a little bit but they haven't really improved very much there's still a kind of tendency among courts to take scientific information and use it to decide what the just position is. And science isn't really about justice. So it's not, we were very critical about that use then. And I think it's still happening now. Most of what I write now is more about um, the use of genetic information by geneticists or by other scientists rather than by um, the legal system. Uh, very interesting. So that brings us then to the Engelberg Center on Innovative Law and Policy, 1998 to the present. Oh, because you, actually, you actually skipped one of my, probably the article that I'm best known for, um, was an article called Expressive Generosity. Um, Pep I think Trademarks in the Pepsi Generation is what it's called. Um, that was the first article I wrote after I got tenure. And... At the time, trademark lawyers were um, 
really pushing the limits of trademark law and claiming every time anybody spoke a trademark that was their theirs. And um, and I, I would push back against that and said people use trademarks for all kinds of reasons, uh, for expressive reasons, you know. And, and there's a book by Barbara Kingsolver with a character named Barbie in it. And it's just to show that, you know, she's been influenced by this very, you know, sort of materialistic society. Um, and so I wrote this article that we have to think differently about trademarks when they're used in ordinary language. And that's probably my most cited article. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you know, I don't really do very much trademarks, but... Um, I it was right after I got tenure and it was the first time I could write whatever I felt like writing. And the Supreme Court had decided some case about the Olympic trademarks. And I thought, this is interesting. I'm just going to go off on this tangent and write this thing. And uh, as I said, you know, I, I've probably been asked to do more talks on this paper than any other. So I should look forward to looking at this paper. Thank you. Um, <laughs> You, you uh, no, no, thank you very much for, for bringing that up for the record. I'm really grateful to you. Um, that sounds like a fascinating paper, actually, a fascinating topic. Yeah, it was, so a, it was you, a fun paper to do, yeah. You, uh, you, you were made the co-director of NYU's Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law and Policy, and... Uh, can you tell us anything about this appointment, what it entailed, and perhaps well, the type of research? Originally, I was the director because the, I was the basically the only person at NYU doing intellectual property. Uh, Al Engelberg gave the money for us to create a center, and he he'd known I I didn't really know him, but he he'd known me from I don't know something I did and. He'd gone to NYU as a student, and so he decided when he wanted to create the center, he would do it at NYU. And he wanted you know, more research into intellectual property, uh, especially patents. So he he was a really strange, interesting guy. Uh, he made his money by challenging the validity of pharmaceutical patents. So um, when the generic drug industry started. He wrote all of these brand new little generic drug companies and said, what, what pharmaceutical would you like to break the patent on? And they wrote back and said, well, we don't have any money to pay you, so we're not going to do that. And he said, no, 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 I don't want any money. I want 5% of your company. And these companies were worthless. So they said, sure. And he broke these patents. And of course, now these are some of the biggest companies in the world. And the money just com comes rolling in. So that's why he gave it and his main interest is in pharmaceuticals and why prices of pharmaceuticals in the United States are so high. And of course now he's interested in these questions of access to medicine. So, you know, he that's always been where he was. And of course he knew I had worked for a pharmaceutical company. So our interests kind of lined up pretty nicely. Yeah. Right. Um, so I counted that prior to 1998, you had published one book, five book chapters, 24 papers, and since 1998, you've added a prodigious 12 books, 24 book chapters, and 54 articles, which suggests that the center has been a source of great inspiration to you. 
Well, I, I, I mean, I, until you told, until you wrote me that, I had not thought of it that way. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think one of the things that happened was, I mean, we he he gave us money, you know, and it had to be tied to intellectual property and most especially patents. But you know, I was able to bring in a lot of people to come and do talks and. Um, you know, to go and see what other centers were doing um, and to start working with people who were in, you know, not exactly my area, but areas adjacent to it. And so it, 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 it really did become a great way for me to learn about the world and learn what was going on. It was also a, um, a very interesting time for intellectual property. Because in 1994, the World Trade Organization got created, and part of the World Trade Organization agreements is this agreement on intellectual property. So there had been um, international agreements on intellectual property at the end of the 19th century, um, the Berne Convention and the Paris Convention, but they had very sort of fairly minor obligations, and they weren't enforceable anywhere. So a country could join and then not do anything. Um, but when it came into the World Trade Organization, suddenly these were enforceable obligations in um, the dispute resolution system in the World Trade Organization. And the um, requirements, the obligations were much, much, much harder, uh, especially for patents. They really changed the international system. Uh, and so when he, he, when I had to do the very first conference for the Engelberg Center, this thing had just come into being. Uh, almost nobody knew anything about it because it wasn't negotiated by intellectual property people. It was negotiated by trade people. So I thought, hmm, I, we should do a conference on this. And so, I mean, just finding people who knew about the I, intellectual property provisions was hard, but, you know, I I put together this conference and these people whom I didn't know before. And, you know, I brought people who didn't know anything about it, but were interested in it together. And, uh, you know, it just created this wonderful community of people who are interested, not just in intellectual property, but in international intellectual property. And, um, and so I think a lot of what I wrote has been about that about the international aspects. And there really weren't a lot of people doing it. And there was a lot of need for it. I mean, the government used to call me up and ask me, you know, if we do this, then what? I mean, and I'm thinking, why are you calling me? You know, but, um, but there weren't that many people who'd written about it. Um, so that's, that's why. Um, and, uh, and so it became, it did become a, a you know, because I had the center and because that was our first conference, I think it did become a very rich experience and, you know, just brought me to a whole new area that nobody knew very much about. So you could make your mark if there's nobody else making any marks. Mm. That is fascinating. Mm. And speaking of the international component, which has not, which had now come into your work, you had quite a few visiting professorships spanning 91 to 2009 at Chicago, the Max Planck Institute, Washington School of Law, University of Singapore. Is there anything you might say about this? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think what happened when, when I was trying to figure out what that first conference should be, 
Um, somebody said, oh, you should do international work. You'll get such good trips. And so that was true. I got great trips, uh, including some of these offers uh, at Max Planck and Singapore and Oxford and, and now here. Um, yeah. And so if you do international work, there's just nothing better than to be able to spend some time in other countries and to learn how other people do things and, um, you know, to sort of see how. I was in Australia a few years ago, and they were grappling with some cases that were very similar to U.S. cases. So it's interesting to see how they were thinking about the U.S. cases, because it was very different from how we think about them. And so, you know, that was terrific. And being able to come to what was formerly the EU when I went to Oxford um, was also interesting because I got to know a lot more about EU law um so yeah all those things are were you know i i think i was invited because i had started to move into this international field which was new for intellectual property and i benefited from them because that's what i was thinking about anyway which brings which us brings us part professorship what were the circumstances of your invitation to cambridge for this position I have zero idea. <laughs> so I'm sitting at my desk and I get this email that says, would you like to be the Goodhart professor? And um, a friend of mine had was a former Goodhart professor, Jane Ginsburg. Um, I don't know if you interviewed her back yeah. in the day. Yeah, that was before. Yeah, so yeah. She, had, she had been the Goodhart professor at the time that I was writing with her. So I was actually here in this very room that I'm sitting in right now working on a book with her. Um, and so I think I was here for maybe three weeks uh, at the beginning of her tenure and then two weeks at the end. So I was here like five weeks at the time. But I never imagined they'd ask me. But when I got this letter, I knew exactly what the house looked like. I knew what this room looked like. You know, I know all of and um, and I was very excited. So I said, yes. And then I didn't. And it said that you, that the, the professorship would start in three years. And that's the way it had been for Jane, too. She was offered it in one year and then it started three years later. And we do that, too. We offer things to globals very far in advance so that they can arrange it. But I never heard another word after that. Just nothing. So I thought they were asking me if I wanted to be considered for it. And then I hadn't gotten it. And then about a year later, Richard Fentiman emails me and says, would you mind changing years with so-and-so because he would like to come in 2019 to 2020. And that's the first time I realized that I actually did have the professorship. <laughs> so, you know, this odd, odd thing. So I said, no, I didn't want to switch. Many in, in retrospect, maybe it would have been good to switch, but, uh, but I, yeah, but I didn't. Um, and uh, yes, and I, you know, I I suspect that the person who got it for me was Lionel Bentley. Um, that you know, every few years they ask him, you know, who would be good because you know he has Jane and he are very good friends. So he was asked again. So I'm, I assume it was him. And of course, your time at uh, Oxford gave you a very good sense of the unique Oxbridge collegiate system, um, which, of course, 
puts the faculty to one side, really. I mean, center stage is the collegiate life. And um, how, how do you find this collegiate system? It's it's so different. I mean, it's it's incredibly interesting and incredibly interestingly different, too. So um, at my own institution, the people I know best are is the law faculty. And we have lunch together three times a week. And, um, you know, at lunch, we talk about law issues. And from time to time, we think of something that's interesting and we decide to write on it together. And we never talk about anything else. Here, the people you know best are the people at your college. And there's only maybe two other law people, so you hardly ever see them. And instead, you have all these fascinating conversations about things that are utterly unrelated to your area and, you know, and at high table too. And, but it's, you know, I mean, there it's utterly fascinating and really opens your mind. And, you know, you wind up reading things you would never have known even existed, no less that you'd be interested in reading them, but it doesn't lead to any new articles or anything. You know, it's sort of, so it, it sort of opens you up, but doesn't lead you any place. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very different, very interesting. I mean, I'm thrilled to have the experience. Is your area of IP law well represented at Cambridge in the teaching faculty? Oh, yeah, I'm extremely lucky about that. So when I was at Oxford, there were not very many people. There was two people. But here, there's Lionel, there's... Um, uh, um, Henning Gwosus Khan, um, who also does international IP, so he's probably the person I'm closest with. Um, but then there's all those life sciences people also. Um, so, yeah. And there's there's a bunch of postdocs and people like that around too. So I know that uh, Dr. Nadell is working on the complexities of stem cell research which perhaps is in your line of interest up to a point. Who's that? Kathy Liddell. Oh, Kathy Liddell. Oh, yeah, Kathy, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, her group um, are people that I, I know from things that I've done. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the truth is I kind of came here because I wanted to work with Henning, so I've been doing much more international stuff. And hers is now extreme. I, I wrote a so she's she's kind of in a larger group with people at the University of Copenhagen, and I was there a couple of years ago, and people at um, in, in Australia at Tasmania, and I was there a few years ago. So I sort of have been doing work around the stuff that she's been doing for a while, um, but I, I haven't had the chance to work with an international person, so that's why I really wanted to work with Henning. She did a conference and I did a paper at the conference. So, you know, we've certainly had interactions. But, right. uh, yeah. And the uh, what courses have you taught? Here? Yes. Uh, yeah, so the Goodhart professor doesn't necessarily have to teach a course, but um, Henning was going on leave. Um, so I taught his course, which is International Intellectual Property. So, so that's the course I taught. Right. So any projects that you've been able to complete while here? I've done a few things. Well, I've had, you know, I've, I've actually done quite a few things. And of course, now 
time is infinite. So, um, so I, I did a, a, a short project, which I actually presented at Oxford on recent international agreements and their uh, impact on intellectual property. Um, then I, I gave a, a talk at the Lauterbach Center, Center on, um, on uh, uh, technological inequality and ways to think about trying to make developing countries more technologically sophisticated and become inventive in their own right instead of just taking stuff, actually producing stuff for the world markets. So, um, you know, they gave me a lot of good ideas on how to improve that paper. So I'm busily rewriting that paper with all their ideas in it. Um, so uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Bill Cornish um, for this archive a few years ago. And as you know, of course, he was the inaugural Herschel Smith Professor, and he'd been a collaborator with the Max Planck Institute starting in 1978, mm -hmm. as you did in 1998. So did, did you have, have you ever had much to do with Bill in earlier well, years? Yes, I mean, yes. I mean, back in the day when he was very active, yes, I talked to him a lot. As I said, when I began in intellectual property, there were not that many people in it, and he was one of the guiding lights. So I certainly read everything he wrote and uh, uh, was thrilled the first few times that I met him, all the times I've met him. And when I was at Max Planck, I, I rented his apartment. He had an apartment there, um, which he kept permanently, and I rented that apartment, and I used his office. So oh. even in Accenture, I had a lot of contact with him. Yeah. So, apropos of the interview I did with him, uh, Professor Bentley in Bill's Feshgrift said, mm -hmm. and I quote, that Bill was the father of intellectual property teaching and scholarship in the UK, and that Bill had been urged by Professor Khan Freund to take up IP while he was at the LSE in the late 60s. So, IP law came to be taught in the UK via a German emigre, and I, I wondered how, how, what is the analog in the United States? Well, I mean, I guess that's true there too. Um, so my, when I tell my students about how I wound up in IP because this guy was dying, they say, oh God, why would you take the job of somebody who's dying? But he took the same, it was the same story with him. The person before him, was a guy named uh, Walter Derenberg, and he was the guiding light of IP. And then when he was diagnosed as dying, uh, Alan took his job. So there's been two of that. And Derenberg, I think, was very influenced by the Germans. I mean, I think he wrote quite a lot of stuff that was very related to German law and how the Germans thought. I don't know if he was himself originally German, but... Um, but he was sort of the head of the I, sort of the the IP lawyers IP lawyer, um, and then Alan kind of became that. Um, so yeah, so I think American IP law was pretty heavily influenced. American academic IP law pretty heavily influenced by the Germans too. Right. Well, since you've been here, yeah. in general, is very heavily influenced by the Germans. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, since you've been here in Cambridge, 
two major political events, uh, both towards the latter stage of your tenure. First of all, Brexit is now a reality after three years, and currently we're assailed by the coronavirus crisis. And I wondered if you had any comments as a foreign neutral on the way that Cambridge and the UK in general have reacted to these important events. Well, you're, you're asking, what's the expression? You're asking the pot to call the kettle black. Is that the expression? I mean, you know, I don't think the EU has reacted well to any of this, but being an American, I can hardly say that since Donald Trump is, you know, insane about all, all these things. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a pity to be in uh, a country that really didn't um, prepare well enough, even though they knew about it. But if I weren't here, I'd be in a country that prepared even more poorly and is even worse shape than here. Um, as far as Brexit goes, for an American, it's a very hard thing to understand. Uh, you know, I think our strength has always been by being a big country with a large market and having room for people to move around and find the right place. And I think young people in the EU, in the UK, thought that was their future too. So it's really hard for me to understand Brexit at all. Yes. Well, uh, Professor Dreyfus, that brings us to your published work. Are you happy for us to continue or would you like to take a break? It's fine to just continue, but if you want to take a few minutes. In fact, I, I, I'm just going to get some more water. Right here. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Resuming then with your published work, you have a prolific record of publication and it's therefore only possible to obtain a brief overview of your output, which spans 1980 to the present, 40 years. I've looked at three books and one paper to try and gain a sense of your work. So I've looked at your 2012 Neo-Fedris Vision of Trips, <clears throat> your 2014 Balancing Wealth and Health, 2018 Oxford Handbook of Intellectual Property, and your 2018 article on Brexit and intellectual property. Just some general points. I've noticed that in your books, you have fruitfully collaborated over the years, particularly with Professor Graham Dinwoody, Professor Catherine Strandberg, and Professor Jane Ginsberg. And perhaps this harks back to your time in science, where the work by definition was collaborative, and you, you are comfortable with a sense of perhaps kinship and collaboration. Yeah, I guess that, I guess that's right. Um, I mean, I do like collaborate. I, I do like writing with other people. You know, people who know something somewhat different from what I know. Um, I think it has something to do with trying to span more than one field. You know, I mean, if I was just writing about the details of some legal doctrine, I could do that myself. But because I'm trying to do international and domestic or you know, science and law, it, it, it really helps to know people who are, who's, to expand the knowledge base uh, of, for the article. Um, Graham, I've worked with a lot. So Graham, Graham used to teach at Oxford. That's how I got to Oxford was because of Graham. Uh, and so the Brexit book, the Brexit article, 
somebody asked me to write about Brexit, and I thought, well, I really should do it with somebody from the UK. So that's how I wound up with Graham. Um, but we, we both have a very similar attitude towards what international law should accomplish. Uh, how uh, for a lot of people, they they would like to see what's called departmentization, that everybody have every country have the same law. And I think both Graham and I have this, you know, really fundamental sense that that's wrong and that there are really good reasons why countries should be able to experiment and to have some areas where it comes together so that you can coordinate international activity, but, um, but not, you know, absolutely have to have the same law as another country because countries are different. They're, they have different creative strengths. They have different cultures. They, they have different backstories. They have different, um, you know, legal regimes other than the intellectual property regime. And so we've always had, this feeling that to extent you think about the world, you should think about it a little bit the way the United States thinks about itself as a federalist system where every state has its own power. And then there are some ways, places where you have to stay together uh, in order to be able to create the right level of exchanges and stuff. So that's what we called it neo-federalism. It's not a federal system like in the United States, which is one country, but rather a conglomeration of of different countries that agree to agree on some issues, but also agree to disagree uh, in some places too. So, right. So, and and sure. so we've had a lot of. Besides the book, we've also before the book we wrote several articles, and then somebody suggested to us it would make a good book, and we thought, oh, okay, we'll just put together the chapters. But of course, it doesn't turn out that way at all. You have to write the whole thing from scratch. But uh, we didn't know that when we started. <laughs> So if I may just ask you a few very general questions about this book, written with um, Professor Dan Woody. You said in the preface that you worked on this value within Christian's College. So were there any particularly specific advantages to being at St. Catherine's while you were working on the book? Oh, well, he was, he, he was a professor at Oxford then. So, yeah, there was... Being next to it, being able to work together, yeah. So uh, I, I was, I knew I'd be have a sabbatical, and so he was looking for some way for me to be able to come to Oxford. And St. Catherine's had this Thomas Christensen fellowship, uh, so that's how I wound up at St. Cat's. So apropos trips, the shift in lawmaking from WIPO to the WTO, um, doesn't this place? Trip the trips procedure at the mercy of the fortunes of the WTO. So it, it is turning out that way. I think people thought that the WTO was on very solid ground, uh, and they were delighted with the move because, I mean, prior to the WTO, you had this World Intellectual Property Organization, but all they did was IP. I mean, you know, it, all all they did was think about patents, trademarks, and copyrights. That that was basically it. And if you wanted to move the system forward, there was no exchange that you could do. I mean, a country that didn't want to have strong IP protection just said no, and that was the end of it. But in the WTO, you could trade off other things. So you could trade, you could say, okay, if you give us stronger protection, then we'll open our market for more of your manufactured goods, for example. So it provided a better way to 
create exchange uh, and uh, to, you know, sort of move international IP law forward. I don't think, you know, and I think people thought that the creation of the WTO is really going to put this on very solid ground. You know, now it's turning out that, you know, Donald Trump is, uh, you know, preventing the appointment of new um, uh, judges on the appellate body and they've had a hard time negotiating things for a while now. Um, but, you know, hopefully things will improve. Um, and, you know, there are some light, glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of negotiations. What's going to happen to the appellate body, I don't know. But, um, but interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Trump believes that you should have bilateral agreements just between two countries. Almost nobody believes this. And, um, you know, he's hopefully his term will end eventually. Yes. And then things I think hopefully will go back to being a more cooperative globe. Maybe COVID-19 will do that to make people realize how integrated the world economy actually is and how much we have to work together. So maybe things will change. So speaking of which, in your view of TRIPS as a neo-federalist system, uh, in Chapter 5 of your book, uh, in which states retain discretion to experiment with their own laws, do you see the EU as one state or federation within the worldwide federation? Oh, I mean, I, I think the EU does know the answer to that question. So, I don't know. So, I mean, if you think about intellectual property, they've, they, the, I think there is a large group of people who would like to have a much closer association within the EU. So, they did create so trademark laws. So you could get a trademark in the UK. And it would be good in the UK. You could get one in France and it would be good in France. And, you know, get one in Germany, it would be good in Germany. But you can also get an EU trademark and then it's good throughout the EU. So it's the EU kind of becoming one single country in a way. And you could imagine that the people who like that would think that should be broader. Maybe, you know, countries that are not in the EU you could join this EU trademark. And, you know, I think there are quite a few countries who would like to. Um, but they've been trying to do an EU patent since, oh, I don't know, at least 1990, I think earlier than that. And it's just not gone forward because there are too many people who think that each country should be on its own and each country should do its own thing. So I think even within the EU, there's, and copyrights also now, it, you have to get, I mean, it, it, copyright's automatic. So in some ways, it doesn't matter if you have been, UK copyright and a French copyright and a German copyright because they're all automatically get created. But still, I think there's a lot of people who would like to see a single EU copyright. But, you know, there's not everybody agrees to these things. And if you can't get the EU to agree, you're never going to get the whole world to agree. So, uh, you, you speak in chapter six of your book about the phenomenon of fragmentation mm -hmm. that can produce, and I quote, cacophony. And uh, this is, reminds me of um, the interview I had with Professor Marti Koskinemi oh, in 2009-10 yeah. and his observations on the fragmentation of international law 
So do you see parallels in the breaking of an ostensibly large body of law into almost competing subsets? Um, yeah, I, yeah M Marty teaches at uh, NYU sometimes. So before I came here, he gave me all kinds of pointers about the house and things that were broken and to be careful about them and things. Um, and But what I've really learned from Marty is about fragmentation. I mean, he's sort of the person who uh, has tried to figure out how the international system should could work together, even though you have the, this sort of fragmented system where, you know, one under one agreement, you would at least look to the other agreements and think, what can you learn from that and how should we how should we handle things within our agreement in a way that's consistent with what the other agreement is doing? He, he's done a tremendous amount of work along those lines, and I have cited him liberally in many of the things that I've written. Which brings us to your book with written with Professor Rodriguez Garavito, Balancing mm -hmm. Wealth and Health, mm -hmm. Battle of IP and Access to Medicines in Latin America. And I found a review by Aurelia Schultz, who is Counsel for Policy and International Affairs at the U.S. Copyright Office. And she's, she says the book is, and I quote, chock full of primary research, interviews with key players and first-hand accounts. It's not just a collection of essays, but a wholly integrated approach. It is a cohesive volume. And I thought that was very high praise. Yeah. It's difficult to achieve this with multi-authors, and how did you reach this? Yeah, so I, I hadn't seen that review, so thank you for drawing it to my attention, and I'm happy that you said that because we certainly worked hard on it. So um, so this, um, so Cesar was originally trained as a sociologist, and then, but now as a law professor, and actually he's at my institution this year as a visitor. He normally teaches in Columbia. Uh, and he he kind of did the major organizational work on this. He found um, you know researchers who would study each of the individual Latin American countries. I was very interested in this question of how do countries take these international requirements and then apply them to their own country, and why are some countries very successful at implementing them in a way that brings their own interests forward and fulfills them and other countries just you know let some crazy american write law for them that's just totally incompatible with their needs um so that's what i was interested in and you know he it, ha it happened was interested in that too um but he know, knew how to do things like devise surveys bring you know he knew all the people I didn't know any of the people in Latin America, um, but he he found people. Um, we chose the countries together. I mean, we didn't we didn't want to do it the entire lower half of the Western Hemisphere. So we tried to choose some small countries, some bigger countries. No country that was too tightly connected to the United States. So that's why we didn't do Mexico. Um, and then he found the researchers, and then we had a lot of sessions of putting together the questions they would ask, who they would talk to, you know, how they would write this up. Um, and then we, we met with all of them um, all together once, but separately in groups several times. And they each kind of wrote up their report on what they had done. And um, some of them, some of them were in Spanish. And so we got somebody to translate them, but 
not somebody who was a good translator, unfortunately. So I wound up sort of rewriting all the chapters. Um, so that's why it looks as cohesive as it does for better or worse. It's, it's a little bit of my voice in all of the chapters. Um, a couple of, some of the people, the Central American one was written by a, uh, an, an American actually. I mean, her parents were from one of the countries, but, um, so hers didn't need to be rewritten. In fact, she's the one who thought of the title Wealth and Health, um, uh, but but for everybody else, it was all you know. It, it, it was you know a script that they had and how they were going to do it. And you know, Cesar did virtually all of that. I mean, it's kind of the way sociological research is done. Um, but then you know, there were some. None of them were really I only well maybe two or three of them were IP people. Most of them weren't. So the questions I had to think up and then we had to do some follow-up too, because there were some things, but yeah, so it re just, it required a huge amount of hands-on effort to get that book the way it, it was. Yeah. So I'm glad somebody appreciated it. <laughs> well, in the preface written by uh, Professor Kingsbury and Professor Stewart, it states that in the 11 countries covered in this book, the powerful North has divided and dragooned the developing Central and South American countries into making agreements with TRIPS, CAFTA, etc., which increase local prices of pharmaceuticals without incentivizing local production capacity or investing themselves to combat major diseases other than those occurring in rich countries. Do you think this is a fair summary of your conclusions? Yeah. Um, hmm. It's an interesting question. So um, the reason they wrote the introduction is because the book was done under the auspices of their center, which is the Center on International Law and Justice or something, I think it's called. So um, so they had actually gotten the funding that we used to do the study. I, I think the Engelberg Center did some of it, but mostly it was their funding. So that's why they wound up writing the introduction. And the book is part of a series of books that they have on different areas of law and the impact uh, of the law on different countries. So, yeah, I mean, mostly what I'd, I'd say we were looking at in that book was how countries that don't have a lot of money have access to patented pharmaceuticals. So that was kind of the question that we were asking. It wasn't really our conclusion. It was more the question. Uh, we know that these countries are going to have access problems. How did they deal with those access problems? We didn't ask the question, how are they going to become innovative in their own right? And that's what I'm working on now. Oh. At that time, that was the question is, you know, can, can, can they figure out ways to relax the strict requirements of the TRIPS agreement in a way that will enable them to get the benefits of modern science, modern medicine uh, for use in their own countries. And, you know, some were better than others. And, you know, the question was why that happened. So some countries had very strong generic drug industries that really supplied a lot of the research to, to the legislature to show them what would happen if they met all of the demands of the United States and to a lesser extent the EU and how the price of medicine would go up and also help them to find ways to not 
do the worst um, for their countries. Other countries like Argentina had a generic drug industry too, but they distrusted it. They thought that the medicines were fake. And so nothing they said that they listened to. And so you wound up with a very different regime at the end because they didn't have that expertise at, at hand. Um, some countries had um, welcomed a lot of uh, uh, um, non-government organizations like Doctors Without Borders, for example, into them. And Doctors Without Borders really did help them think things through. And other countries had the doctors, you know, had had some of these NGOs at the very beginning when they were negotiating the agreement, but not when they were implementing it. And so they negotiated a pretty good deal and then they implemented in a pretty stupid way. So that's 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 what we were looking at was the question was how how was access produced and how well do these countries manage to withstand um, demands from all of the developed countries and the pharmaceutical industry to raise prices. And so we were looking for, you know, the NGOs, you know, how they affected it, how the generic drug industry affected it, you know, how doctors performed. So for many of the doctors, it was just all about them making money. For other doctors, it was really about helping their patients. So that, that, that's, that was what we were looking for in the book. And in your experience, is this state of affairs also representative of the situation in, for example, Africa or some of the poorer Southeast Asian countries? Um, I mean, I don't know because I haven't done the research, but um, I think for some of these countries, they, they, they don't have any industry. They don't have a generic drug industry. So the generic drug industry means that you've already got scientists. You're already making some money from these pharmaceuticals. You care about whether they're patented or not because you were making money from them. And you've got all this expertise, which, as I said, helped in some of these countries. For them, you know, it's it's all coming from abroad. You know, there's not, you know, in South Africa is, of course, different. You know, a couple of them are different, but um, but it's they're they're operating, and I think in for the most part, way worse situation than Latin America, where we were looking. So, just coming to your conclusion in the book, chapter fourteen, um, balancing wealth and health in a transnational regulatory framework. You say that the promise of TRIPS has been largely illusionary in raising living standards and improving the quality of life. Here you're dealing specifically with pharmaceutical companies and medicines, but in your experience, has TRIPS in general failed across the whole IP board in South America? Um, well, I, I don't know that it's failed across the board. Um, I mean, again, you know, this what we say there is based on actual research and now I'm just speculating, but you know, I think it's different for copyright, for example, because a lot of, in, a lot of countries have a very vibrant music industry or a very vibrant film industry. So you've got, you know, Bollywood and uh, in Nigeria, there's a big film industry. And so for them on the copyright side, it's been a very positive story um, you know, uh, uh, many of these countries have music industries that are doing really, really well. Um, so on the, on the copyright side, it's not quite the same. I mean, it is for things like computer programs and, you know, medical textbooks and, 
you know, the, uh, e even elementary school textbooks, I mean, they have trouble paying for those things. Um, and so they have sort of the same problems that you see for medicines, but they are also getting benefits from the system. And so, um, you know, that's way better than on the patent side. For trademarks, trademarks have not been as controversial as the others because everybody has trademarks. Every consumer needs some way to decide what product is the one they want to buy. And every marketer needs to be able to have a line of communications with their customers and have their rivals not use their marks. So, you know, as long as you have a market, you need trademarks. Um, and so trademark protection has not been particularly uh, fraught um, in, in those same terms. So interesting. And you mentioned corruption um, on page 324. And it just comes up several times in your piece. And I wondered whether you thought that overall this is a significant factor um, in the problems that you discuss. And is there anything that can be done to counter it legally or is it a cultural issue? So, um, so the, you know, there's the, the, the IILJ, the center for which we wrote the book, um, also has a big project on corruption. So that was something they actually asked us to look at. Um, and, and corruption comes up in the context that we were looking at because in some of these countries, um, the higher the price of pharmaceuticals, the more government officials can skim off the top. So they don't have a strong incentive to enact laws that will keep prices down because they will personally make money from keeping prices up. So, so corruption is, is a problem in the for the pharmaceutical sector. Um, now, do I think it's going to go away? I, I mean, you know, I'm living in the United States, not right this minute, but I'm an American and I live in the United States. And I mean, all the money that's supposed to be going to COVID-19 is going to these big companies. So uh, corruption seems to go in the other direction. <laughs> Things get more corrupt, not less. I, you know, I mean, <sighs> I'm beginning to be living in a kleptocracy, so I can't comment on corruption in other countries. So the on page 343, you speak about the conf confrontation between IP hardliners and domestic interests on access to medicines, and it's almost become a war with activists mobilizing on both sides of the issue. And you say that there's very little customary international law to turn to, though human rights law is progressively coming to the rescue. So I wondered where the ICJ stands and whether a case has ever been mooted or would it fly on the issue of a right to health? Um, well, the ICJ, in th so before the TRIPS agreement, there was this Berne Convention and the Paris Convention, both of which were um, uh, administered by the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is a agency of the United Nations. So in theory, if you had a problem under either of those agreements, you could take it to the ICJ. Um, so it would have had, I mean, in theory, it has power over um, Bern and Paris, which also cover copyrights, patents, and trademarks. But nobody has ever brought a case before the ICJ. Uh, it's just never happened, uh, in part because um, the ICJ I think countries have to agree to be brought before the ICJ and 
the feeling is no country would agree to a case about IP and the ICJ. Nobody's ever tried it. So the ICJ doesn't do that. The European Court of Human Rights has had a few IP cases. Um, and increasingly, the Court of Justice of the European Union has had a few cases that have involved human rights and IP. And um, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, has freedom of expression versus copyright. So we don't call it human rights, but you know, we call it the Bill of Rights. Um, so, so there have been some cases, both in national courts and the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think that's increasingly right that um, people are beginning to see the human rights side of these problems. Right. So in summary, uh, the picture that you paint is actually quite bleak. But if the larger South American domestic pharmaceutical companies, which are capable of doing research on local disease, um, if they were to be given UN funding, would, not, would that not help them to produce specific drugs that South America needs? Would it not be a way of circumventing some of the problems? I, you know, people have talked not so much about South America, but about India, because India has really the strongest generic drug industry in the world and has um, ambitions to start becoming an originator company themselves. Um, there's a big difference, though, between being a generic drug company and being an originator, and it's turning out not so easy to make that shift. Um, U.S. originator companies have been trying to get into the generic drug business also, and shifting that way is also not so easy. Um, they're just two completely different industries. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if anything good comes out of this pandemic, it will be that a uh, greater need for um, building up the capabilities of some of these countries from which these pandemics come. So, you know, I think China has actually done a huge amount of work um, on uh, COVID-19 and, and on um, viruses more generally, uh, on spotting them and on finding cures and vaccines for them. And uh, some of the other countries in Asia, too, you know, where quite a few of these seem to start. So Indonesia uh, has a viral virus lab. So, you know, I think that as we realize that we can't do it, no one country can do it on their own. I'm hopeful that um, that that we'll start realizing we've got to fund people in many different countries to make sure that we're all safe. No, I'm hoping you're right that funding them will really, I, you know, I think there's smart people all over the world. And um, I mean, like the Indians, for example, when they decided they wanted to have uh, a bigger presence in the pharmaceutical field, the people I worked with at Sibagaygi, half of them were Indians, and some of them went back. And, you know, they've sort of recollected their diaspora and put them into the labs there. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how things might change. Right. Well, we come then to your Oxford Handbook of Intellectual Property Law, which you edited with Professor Justine Piller. And this was a rolling online format of the Oxford Handbook. Um, and I wondered how this format was conceived. Not by me. So, um, so this also came out of my having been at, at Oxford. 
um, because Justine is a fellow at St. Cat's, which is where I was. So St. Catherine, um, Catherine with an E rather than an A, like the one here. But uh, uh, and uh, and so uh, Oxford, you know, is always looking for interesting things to do, and they had suggested to her they have this big handbook series. I'm not not in law particularly, like history and sociology and lots and lots of fields. I have these handbooks. And so they were discussing with her the possibility of having ones in law. And she said, well, if you move in that direction, we consider doing it in IP. And so they said yes. And so we decided to do it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like herding cats. You know, there were so many different authors. We needed authors from all over the world um, because many of the chapters are about IP law in the Arab countries and IP law in the Asian countries and stuff. So we had, I think, originally something like 40 authors. And you know, everybody works on their own timetable. And, you know, some people, we had a date that it was due. Some people's paper was there that day. Some people's papers weren't there for like two years later. And it's really horrible if you're one of the early ones, because by the time they're ready to publish, what you've written is wrong, you know, and you have to rewrite it. Um, and so Oxford had this idea of, of putting them up a little closer to when we for, when they were submitted and when we edited them. And I, I think that was really nice. Um, so that so wasn't my our idea. It was sort of, it came out of the fact that there were so many different people from so many different places. What a difficult job it must have been to organize the authors. Yeah, really, really was something. And we didn't wind up with 40 authors. Some people just never handed their piece in. And, uh, you know, in some cases, it was a really important piece and we got somebody else to write it. In some places, places we just let it drop. I mean, unfortunately, one person died. Um, Just still on this book, are you concerned, I'm referring to uh, page 11, that some new actors and institutions modify IP law, for example, the Convention on Biological Diversity says that genetic resources such as medically important plants are not the common heritage of mankind, but of the country where the plants are found. Is this of some concern to you? Well, I'm concerned in two different ways about that. So, um, so and the the impulse to allow countries to own their genetic resources is that the TRIPS agreement has been so unfair to developing countries because it's raised prices, et cetera, and they are not innovative in the ways that are protected by intellectual property. And so we need to think about how to protect their contributions to the world's heritage. And so the idea was to give them these rights over generic genetic resources and also traditional knowledge and traditional cultural expression, you know, things like songs and carpets and you know, designs and things like that. The problem is that I, I don't think it returns enough to them. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really a fair trade. I think it's kind of a sop. Um, so I'm worried about that, that um, it's not really giving them what they need to overcome the cost we've imposed on them. And then the second thing is it kind of normalizes the idea that somebody owns everything, that 
You know, if you see something, somebody has to own it. You know, and I always say to my students, you know, my next door neighbors have a beautiful garden. I get to look at their garden and I don't have to pay. They don't have the right to keep me from looking at their garden. And we, you know, so much of what we enjoy in the world is free to us. And the idea that we're going to commodify everything really upsets me greatly. So in both of those ways, I worry about it. I think the, the, the altruistic impulse in it is just misfounded. And all that it does is make make more normalizes the idea that everything can be commodified and you can charge for everything and nobody gets anything for free. That's a lovely analogy with the garden, enjoying a garden. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell to my students and I, you can see half of them, you know, who want to be uh, practitioners thinking she should charge for that garden. <laughs> <laughs> so page 16 of the introduction of this um, very comprehensive compilation mentions that Australia and New Zealand both inherited an English law system, but modified it to reflect local circumstances and indigenous communities. Can you say something about this and, and also perhaps how Canada has adapted a mixed modern common law and civil law to revise its IP regimes? Well, I... Justine, although she teaches at Oxford, is actually Australian, so she's the one who wrote this. But um, but um, New Zealand, in particular, has really modified its IP law to deal with um, to, to to better recognize the interests of the Maori um, in a really serious way. So, for example, trademarks. There's a commission um, of that looks to make sure that um, Maori s signs and, you know, Maori belief system is not, you know, turned into somebody's trademark rights. Um, so they have a right to sort of look at trademarks. Um, but, and, and, you know, the fact of the matter is they've done it for long enough so that trademark holders in New Zealand don't want to misuse Maori marks. I mean, they now understand that that's a bad thing. The public won't like it. Um, so they've, you know, they've really elevated their interests. And, uh, you know, also things like you know, Maori cultural expression, all of that, um, I, I think they have managed to to create a system within New Zealand where there is a fair return on the use of all of that stuff. Now, you know, it's partly special to New Zealand because the the war between the English and the Maori resulted in this Treaty of Waitangi, which has very particular promises in it uh, about the Maori and about their culture and about how it's going to be respected. And, you know, the people have rights. Um, uh, and also a lot of Maori go to law school, so they know what they're asking for. Uh, Australia is a little bit different um, because the Aboriginals were not in, respected in the same way that the Maori were. Um, although there have been some important Supreme Court cases in Australia that uh, protect Maori land. And once you start protecting Maori land, you start recognizing that they might have different attitudes towards ownership of things. I mean, there's no you know, single owner of Maori land, it's owned jointly. And that's the same thing is true of designs for rugs and, you know, all of Maori cultures jointly owned. So once they started recognizing rights and land, 
it was fairly easy to sort of move it over and also recognize rights and cultural property. So there have been some very important cases in Australia about um, the, uh, the, there's something called the dream um, sequence. So it's it's pictures that are you know sacred within their system, um, which people were just making carpets out of. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, they've had to pay hefty fines, and and they've pretty much stopped doing that now. You go to see one of those carpets in um, Australia, you, you can be pretty, it's easy to tell that it's a genuine uh, Maori, uh, uh, Aboriginal design. Canada, um, so they have, um, so the, the Canadian uh, Indigenous peoples are very well organized. They have this group, First Nations, um, and they've also had um, fair success on land. I think a little bit less on their cultural property. I don't think that shift that Australia was able to make, Canada has managed to make. And of course, the United States is helpless, hopeless. And, yeah. Final point. Um, in a culture, how, how any individual can copyright for something? Excuse me? In a country like China, is mm -hmm. it possible to claim copyright? Can an individual or claim copyright? Under Chinese law? Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't know enough about Chinese law. To come. I think they do have copyright, but yeah. So, I mean, so, they belong to the WTO, so they must, yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, brings us in to your paper. Excuse me, let me just close the door. There's somebody... Yeah. The final work to look at this afternoon is your, your paper with Professor Dinwoody, your Brexit and IP, The Great Unraveling, in the Cardoza Law Review, recently published. And here you venture into UK politics. with There's a very intriguing piece. It's very topical, of course, for us. And specifically in the field of copyright, am I right in gathering that the UK would probably gain more than it loses and it would be able to adopt a US-style copyright act, a narrow compensation-free so, private copying. So uh, the background for that piece is um, there's, there's a libertarian society at NYU and they're all very pro-Brexit people. And they decided to do a conference on how this was before Brexit, but on how wonderful Brexit was going to be. And it was going to change all of UK law. And they were going to be able to have so much better law because it was no longer going to be part of the EU. And they asked um, some people to give papers on specific topics. And so they asked me to do this one. And not knowing very much UK law, I asked Graham to do it with me. Um, and yeah, I mean, our analysis was that things weren't going to change very much, um, that the UK is still going to have the EU as its biggest business partner, uh, trading partner, rather. And that, um, you know, first of all, since that paper was written, it basically said it's going to accept all of EU law until it's time to think about changes. But then when you start thinking about what the changes they can make are, there's not a lot. I mean, you know, they're stuck by what the WTR requires, so they can't go outside of that. They're stuck by what the Berne Convention requires. They can't go out of that. 
and they still have to do business with the EU. So our conclusion was that there really there were a few things that they could change. I mean, there were some things that you know the either you know, court of justice decisions were just. <laughs> Most everybody thinks they're wrong. There's a case called L'Oreal against Bill Lore about rights over trademarks. Everybody thinks that's wrong. So the UK will almost certainly change that. Uh, a few other places where they will be able to change things. But, you know, the, the great bulk of stuff. And what happened at this conference was, I think, all of the people who were asked to give individual papers were coming to the same conclusion and they decided that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear that the world's changed. So we were the only ones who actually gave our paper at that conference. And of course, they disagreed with every word we said. But um, but I think our general conclusion is that there's going to be less change than meets the you know than than the great Brexiteers wanted. Interesting, despite the fact that some of the judgments the UK judges were rather unhappy. Uh, oh, yeah. had to apply, as you, you mentioned, the um, um, L'Oreal against of advertising yeah. uh, shapes and colors and the yeah. next uh, yeah. EU registration rules. Yeah, so that, that area. So I think, you know, and, and this is really more Graham than me, but that they'll slowly move back. You know, a case will come along and they'll chip away. You know, they're probably they're not going to announce, hey, EU, we're, we're ditching everything. Forget about us. They'll, they'll slowly chip away. And, you know, the UK judges are very good judges and they're very persuasive. And it wouldn't be terribly surprising if they took the EU along with them a little bit so that the law actually stays more the same, but a little more under the maybe and a little more influenced by what the UK winds up doing. Yeah. With patents, the situation is different because these laws fall under the European Patents Convention. Uh, but you hint that the Remainers might thwart the UK's blocking its falling under the ECJ. Do you know what the current state is of this impasse? Uh, this is a really sad thing. So uh, I think I said before that the, um, there's been this move to create a EU-wide patent and um, that the, what they were going to do is they would have an EU-wide patent. So you would just go to the European Patent Office, you'd get a patent, and it would be good throughout the EU. And there would be special courts that would um, actually litigate the cases. So it's going to be a, a unified patent court for the entire EU. And these two things were regarded as completely dependent on each other, that the patent wouldn't work unless you had the courts. And who was going to be the judges on the courts? Well, they were going to train some new judges, but the most important judges were going to come from the UK and Germany. And originally, they thought that the UK could still become a member of this court. Um, the only thing that the UK was going to have to do was agree on the very few issues where the ECJ, the Court of Justice, would be able to talk. So most of patent law is not EU law. It's the law of the European Patent Convention, which is not an EU system at all. But they're very, they're, you know, there's a biotech directive. There are a few places where there's EU law, very small, but a few. And what the UK was going to have to do is agree to abide by the decisions of the CJEU 
in those few tiny areas. Even those few tiny areas were too much for Boris Johnson and his pals. So they have now said no go. So I think the whole thing might be dead. Good heavens. They can't go into it. But once the UK isn't there, it's just much less attractive to everybody. Uh, first, because the UK is a big market. And second, because they wanted the judges. So, Gosh. Yeah. So, so I wondered about that. Yeah, yeah. So this, you know, we wrote this before. That's right. Two, two years that they will not abide by a single U, CJEU case. Right. Right. So, so end of story. Uh, I think. Uh, over, 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 picture, that picture that that and IP. You, you, you yeah, said that you said it would be better off harmonizing. In a nutshell, what are the benefits? Of harmonization? Yeah. The UK market is big relative to most of the countries in the um, in the European Union, but it's small relative to the United States, China, Japan, India. Um, and, you know, although at some level it shouldn't matter how big your own market is um, as long as you can sell to the whole world, but it does seem to turn out that it does matter. That, uh, you know, having a larger market right at, you know, very accessible is hugely helpful to innovators uh, for, you know, reasons that people understand a little bit, but not entirely. I mean, you know what that market is interested in stuff. And if they no longer have that ready market, I I think it's going to be a problem. Gosh. Well, you're. I mean, look at. Well, that the countries that are not in the EU, but they are in the EEA, so Norway and Switzerland, they go along with EU law mostly because they want the market. And I don't think the UK UK is that much bigger than these other countries that they're going to be able to do things much differently. But what do I know? Yeah. Very interesting. Very uh, sobering. Yeah. 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 Well, your your good term is almost complete, mm-hmm. and I wondered what, looking back, you would consider as the highlights of the of the stay in Cambridge. Well, I mean, it's too bad <laughs> we've been uh, on <laughs> quarantine for the last what eight weeks, um, but. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed getting to know the people at King's. Um, I wanted to be at King's in part because I've always listened to um, the um, the Christmas Eve um, broadcast, which goes all over the world for at least 20 years. So <laughs> I wanted to be there. And so that was definitely a highlight. It was actually sitting there and, and watching it. I would have liked to watch the Easter service, but of course not happening um or didn't happen um but you know i did get very much enjoy getting to know them i i enjoyed uh al benvenisti who's at the louder box center used to be at nyu so it's been very nice being able to see him again um and and have that and henny although i knew him i don't didn't know him as well as i know him now so that was a total pleasure um, I mean, what I like best is always the people and getting to know the people. 
Um, but, you know, it's also interesting to see the different ways they do seminars and, um, you know, the different added, you know, ways they deal with students, you know, learning experiences. So, I mean, they do a set of workshops with the students. We don't do that. I think it's a great idea. I'm going to try it when I get back. Um, but, I, you know, on the other hand, they don't really get to know the students' names. That doesn't seem to be something they do. But, you know. <laughs> so. When when you return to New York, are there any projects to complete that have grown out of your time here? Well, I think this thing with Henning will not be complete, um, so I'll be finishing that. And um, they, we were supposed to have a conference at the end of May on um, sort of the contours of international law, and um, I think we'll probably have it on Microsoft Teams, but it won't be finished, so there'll be that. So we've been kind of working and preparing for that conference for a while. So that will be a second thing. And, you know, as I said, I gave this paper and they gave me lots of ideas. So I'm busy rewriting that paper and I probably will still be rewriting it, but I do feel very grateful to have this house and to be able to uh, self self quarantine in this beautiful house with a gorgeous garden rather than in my tiny apartment in New York city. And to be in relatively safe Cambridge rather than relatively unsafe New York City. So uh, although it's too bad that my year was partly marred by this, on the other hand, I can't imagine a better place to be if you're going to have to quarantine. <laughs> well, all that remains is for me to thank you so sincerely for such a wonderful interview in these trying times, in less than ideal circumstances, I know that it will be of great interest and value to our audience, which is widely consulted by the Cambridge diaspora and the extra UK legal fraternity. It's very important to keep this record of the illustrious Goodhart incumbents speaking. It's, it's very important to keep it going because it provides our archive with a window on the legal world as it is. And of course, today becomes the past tomorrow. So this facility, which began with Marti, adds to the faculty's histories along with the reminiscences of past scholars. So I'm extremely grateful to you for such a wonderful account. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you read my stuff so carefully. I feel sorry for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me say it's been such... bringing things to my attention that I never thought about. So it was a great Great experience for me too. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you very much.